I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. I think one of the most challenging issues that Christians are facing today is how we as Christians ought to live in the culture around us. And as we saw in the last episode, I'm convinced that our thinking in this matter is dependent upon our biblical understanding of how God is working in this world through two kingdoms, through a universal common kingdom and through a redemptive kingdom. As we saw in the last episode, these two kingdoms are at present distinct, but they will be united when Jesus comes again. But actually, for us as Christians, the two kingdoms are not exactly distinct. The challenge for us today is that we are dual citizens. We are first and foremost citizens of God's redemptive kingdom. We have submitted ourselves to Christ's rule, and our mission is to bring others into that citizenship through evangelism and discipleship. Churches as formal local institutions have been given a very specific singular mission in this age articulated in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Make disciples is the mission that Christ gave to his church as a redemptive kingdom community. Nothing more and nothing less. Our mission involves gathering more citizens of the redemptive kingdom through evangelism, baptism, and teaching. But I've been very careful here to say churches redemptive kingdom communities. I'm not saying, and the Bible doesn't teach, that Christians may not be involved in cultural matters, politics, and other aspects of society. Again, this is why we need to be careful to distinguish between individual Christians in the common kingdom and gathered churches as part of the redemptive kingdom. These are two distinct kingdoms of God with different citizenships, different relationships, and different forms of God's revelation as their authority. But the New Testament does give very clear direction for how we as individual Christians are to behave as members of society. We as human beings are still citizens of the universal common kingdom along with every other person in the world. We are living in this world as citizens, but also as exiles, very similar to how Israel lived in Babylon. So while our mission as citizens of the redemptive kingdom is clear, make disciples, we still have to carefully consider what the Bible teaches about how we as Christians are to live our lives as citizens and exiles in the common kingdom of this world. Perhaps one of the most challenging questions we're facing in this regard today involves our lives in the common kingdom and how we ought to relate to human government. The Bible is clear that as citizens of the common kingdom, we ought to submit to the human institutions that God has appointed. For instance, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, notice this, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's discussing our lives as sojourners and exiles in the common kingdom. But then notice what he says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So as citizens of the common kingdom, we ought to submit to the human institutions that God has appointed. Remember, these human institutions are God's institutions. The common kingdom is God's kingdom. God established common institutions like family and government for the purpose of providentially ruling and sustaining humanity In a sin-cursed world, God has chosen to exercise his universal rule over all things, partly through these two human institutions that he created at the beginning, family and government. In Genesis chapter 2, God established the institution of marriage and by extension family as one of the fundamental building blocks of human society and one of the central institutions that he would use to cultivate and preserve order and flourishing in the world. And then later in Genesis 9, notably after the fall and after the judgment of the flood, God established the institution of human government when he said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God gave the responsibility of capital punishment an exercise of his just judgment of sin to all humankind as a means through which he would sovereignly control man's sinfulness and preserve the world in his order. That responsibility, which takes shape in formal human governments over the course of history, has been given to humankind collectively, not just to believing people. And so even unbelieving governors, when they exercise justice against wrongdoing, are an extension of God's universal rule. And so on that basis, the New Testament teaches that we ought to submit to these common institutions that God has appointed. As Jesus said in Matthew 22, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul discusses this in Romans 13. He says in verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul is talking about human government here. This is not the redemptive rule of God over his people. This is the earthly administration of making laws and enforcing laws and preserving peace and the common everyday affairs of life. And notice what Paul said. Human government was instituted by God. Human government was instituted by God in just the same way that he instituted the church and instituted the office of pastor, for example. 
And notice what Paul says in verse 4 about a governmental ruler who does what God has instituted in punishing wrongdoing and protecting the innocent. He says, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What Paul is saying here is that a governmental official who does his job and enforces laws that help to establish peace and order in society is a servant of God. The word translated servant there is the word diakonos. It's the same word from which we get our word deacon. A governmental official who is doing what God appointed him to do is literally a servant of God. And what does it say at the end of that verse? When he punishes wrongdoing, he is actually carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God is ruling over his universal common kingdom. He is doing that through what we might otherwise consider secular government. But that secular government is part of the common kingdom of God. And so, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, because we are citizens of the redemptive kingdom, we are free, but that doesn't mean we just throw off governing authorities of the common kingdom that God has appointed. We don't leave the common kingdom when we enter the redemptive kingdom. We are to submit to and honor the governing authorities that God has instituted. However, there are some important qualifications to this command that we need to consider. First, these commands were not given in a representative democratic republic. Christ and Paul and Peter said these things in a Roman dictatorship. They didn't say this in a situation where the governing officials were generally moral people, some of which even claimed to be Christian like we have had historically in the United States. No, the emperor who Peter says to honor was very likely the infamous Nero. Various portions of the letter that Peter is writing indicate that Christians to whom he was writing were already beginning to experience persecution from the government that would soon intensify as we know happened. And so the point is this, the command to submit to and honor governing authorities instituted by God is not dependent upon the moral goodness of the ruler, but rather on the fact that God has instituted that ruler as immoral and hostile to Christianity as he may be for the purpose of sustaining order in the world. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.14, God has appointed these governing authorities to punish evil and praise those who do good. When we submit to our governing authorities, we are submitting to God. But there are limits to this submission. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. That's two-kingdom theology in a nutshell. Often those two commands don't conflict, but if they do, we need to follow the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they said, we must obey God rather than men. If the commands of God and the commands of men conflict, we must obey God. But when we look at Acts chapter 5 and the example of the apostles, we can see a model for what that ought to look like. First, we need to make certain that it really is a contradiction before we disobey the commands of men. 
it would be very easy for us to quickly cite this principle whenever there is simply an apparent contradiction. We need to make sure that if we are going to resist governmental authority, that we are actually doing so on the basis of conscience because of a clear command in the word of God. But second, in Acts chapter 5, we note that the apostles and other believers, they didn't take up arms and actively fight against the Jewish leaders. No band of Christians came to break the apostles out of jail, for example. None of the Christians bombed the headquarters of the Sanhedrin. They passively resisted the commands of men, even to the point of imprisonment, when they contradicted the commands of God. But we also notice in Acts chapter 5 that while this was passive resistance, Peter didn't just refuse to obey and keep his mouth shut. Peter explained to the governmental authorities why he could not obey. And then he preached the gospel just like he had the last time he was imprisoned. What's clear is that this resistance to the commands of men was not out of stubborn protection of their rights. It was for the sake of the gospel. If we are going to disobey the commands of men because they conflict with the commands of God, we need to make certain that we're doing so for the sake of the gospel and then make that very clear to all that are around us. And then a fourth important qualification, if we are going to disobey the commands of men because they conflict with the commands of God, is found a little bit later in Peter's letter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But notice this, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter who experienced suffering himself, tells us not to be surprised when we suffer for Christ's sake. But then he warns us that persecution against us should never come as a result of sin that we have committed. This is exactly where a healthy understanding of God's two kingdoms is so helpful. We ought to recognize that the institutions that God has appointed for the common kingdom have been given specific jurisdictions, but that is where their authority ends. We have to submit to government, but only where God has given them authority. Paul says in Romans 13 that God gave human government the jurisdiction of punishing wrongdoing, especially violence, and that does give governments the authority to enact and enforce laws that prohibit violence against others. Paul also indicates in 1 Timothy 2 that governments ought to protect religious freedom. That's why we ought to pray for governmental authorities, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. And both Peter and Paul indicate that governments should commend those who do good to others. That is the jurisdiction that God has given to government. And in those circumstances, we ought to submit to government as long as what they command does not contradict the commands of the Lord, but that is where their authority ends. 
Government has not, for example, been given by God jurisdiction over education or over health. That is the jurisdiction of the family. And the institution that God appointed for the redemptive kingdom, the church, has been given specific jurisdiction over spiritual matters. The church ought not to meddle in matters under the jurisdiction of the family or government, but neither should the government meddle in matters under the jurisdiction of the church. God has established these jurisdictions, and so we need to follow what God has established. We also need to consider the fact that we do have a somewhat unique situation in a constitutional republic. We don't have an emperor. The president of the United States is not the equivalent to the emperor. The president has been elected by the people and has sworn to uphold the Constitution. In reality, the Constitution of the United States is the equivalent to the emperor in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, honor the emperor. We are under the rule of the Constitution. Governing authorities in our constitutional republic are meant to defend and enact the Constitution. So that does present some unique challenges for we who live in free democratic societies. I'm not going to solve all of those today, but it's important that we carefully think through what obedience to these commands in the New Testament ought to look like in our present cultural political situation. So as one of my good friends, Mark Snowberger, articulated it well in a blog post on this issue of our response to government, we must obey the government unless the government explicitly tells us to disobey God or unless the government exceeds its jurisdiction so as to speak authoritatively into a sphere regulated by another God-instituted authority. Understanding this biblical theology of two kingdoms and the purpose and role and jurisdiction of government certainly doesn't solve all of the complicated church-state issues of our day, especially when human governors are corrupt and use their power for purposes other than God's institution. But this biblical understanding does go a long way in helping to resolve many of the extreme positions on all sides of the debate on how we as Christians ought to interact with our human government. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would really help if you give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.